My message this morning starts with a question, the title is a question, and it finishes with the same question. And the question is this, what then shall I do with Jesus? What then shall I do with Jesus? Over the last couple of weeks, we've had two very good and very, very challenging, provoking, stirring messages. Last week, Ian encouraged us to run the race that God has set for us, and he He taught us from the book of Hebrews, and he unpacked so much of the epistle or the letter to the Hebrew people, and the heart of of how it was written by the writer was addressing a church that was getting really old in its behavior and its operation, and as Ian described it, they had begun to meander. Their faith had begun to meander through life, and, and thus their faith had become weak, but not just weak, it had become easily influenced and easily steered. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, everyone say, therefore. therefore. And as Ian taught us, when there's a therefore comma, it means we need to look what was before it. Why is it therefore? Anyway, it says this, Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, you've got to remember in the book of Hebrews, it's all the champions of faith. It says this, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now, Ian gave us three really good questions to run a systems check on ourselves. Here they are. The first one is this. Is the, what are the weights and the, the things that tie us down? The sins? Here's the first question. Is this getting in the way? Does this slow me down? Is this helpful in my journey with Jesus? If we take those questions and we answer them honestly... We might give ourselves a surprise. (laughs) We might challenge ourselves, but hopefully it will provoke us to do something about it. And then the week before, Ryan brought a message. It was almost like we we probably should have had you first, Ian, and then Ryan, because Ryan's message was called, The Struggle is Real. (laughs) But here's one of the, I, I got a quotable quote from Ryan. I should put it up on Instagram, quote Ryan Piggy. This is what he said. God will meet you where your hunger is, and there is no limit to God. Do you love that? God will meet you where your hunger is, and there is no limit to God. As I thought about these two messages, looked over the notes that I've been taking, and, and I was praying into what to preach this week, I was reminded of a very, very powerful instruction that we are given in the Bible. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, from the New Living Translation, it says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. In two different translations, where the New Living Translation says it determines the course of your life, two other translations say this, that's where life starts. Guard your heart above all else, for that's where life starts. Another translation says this, Guard your heart above all else, For everything you do flows from it. So I ask the question again. What then shall we do with Jesus? Come on, let's pray. Father, Lord, as we look at this question this morning, as we lean into your word, I'm so, so grateful, God, that when we, want to, when, when we want to get close to you, when we want to understand your word, you don't, you don't hold back. You don't place a restriction on it. When it, your word says if we lack wisdom, we can ask of you and you will give it liberally. 
So this morning, Almighty God, would you pour out, would you cloud out this auditorium with revelation, truth, love, grace, mercy, healing, restoration, forgiveness, spirit of the living God, manifest yourself in a very, very real way through this word and your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, when it comes to determining the course of our life, it's important for us to consider where we've been. You know, how many of you have put your new potatoes in already for Christmas? Phew. I'm not the only poor gardener in the church. <laughs> I've only just weeded my veggie garden. I, I have grown an export cop crop of nettles about this tall. Anyway, there is a, a Māori proverb that says this, kamua kamuri, which means walking backwards into the future. This proverb suggests that to, we, we should look to our past to inform our future. Craig Grishel uh, preached a message years ago, and um, I pinched a key line out of one of his, message, one of his messages years ago, and, and the, message, the line was this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. What are you sowing into your life or not sowing? I didn't sow anything into my veggie garden and I got nettles. A good crop of nettles, but they're not very nice. They're not friendly. They don't do me any good. And Suze gets really upset when she walks past the garden and comes in with a rash because my export crop of nettles have attacked her. So I didn't sow anything but weeds and stingy stuff grew. So what are you intentionally sowing into your life? Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson, a, um, a great speaker, a philosopher from the 1800s, you may have heard this phrase because this is his phrase, sow a thought reap, and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. So if we're going to walk backwards into our future, if we're going to look where we've been to inform where we're going, we need to understand this. Our present, our future, our destiny are all tied directly and start with our thoughts. Your thought life is the seedbed of your future. What then shall we do with Jesus? So we're going to go through this quickly this morning. The power of thought. Sow a thought and reap an action. You know, your thoughts are some of the most powerful things you have. If you don't believe you have a superpower, let me tell you, you do. Your primary superpower is your thought life. Your thoughts can actually make you more anxious, more happy, more fearful, more content. What are you thinking on? What you spend your time thinking about has the power to literally physiologically shape you. It shapes your emotions, it shapes your actions, and ultimately your thought life will shape your character. In Isaiah 26 verse 3, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, this is what he says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. We need to fix our thoughts on Jesus. What then shall I do with Jesus? The more time I spend focusing on Jesus, the more time I fix my thoughts on God through his word and through worship, the more my heart will be kept in perfect peace. Now, does that mean that storms won't come? No, no, not at all. <laughs> no, 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 they're going to happen. 
Sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Storms are going to happen. But when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, then the storm, whilst it's there, loses its power to control. What then shall I do with Jesus? Well, the starting point is trust. What must come to him, we must come to him trusting in who he is and having faith in what he's done. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. I really wanted to use the old King James version there because where that says these two things are unchangeable, there's this really groovy, grunty word. It's called, the word is immutable. Oh, I love that. It means it cannot be changed, but it also means immutable. It means it cannot be silenced. It's unmutable. The promises and the declarations of God cannot be silenced. I wait to hear the report. Boom, boom. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. So if we, I wish I could moonwalk. If we, <laughs> no, no, just take your medication, Tom. Stop trying to do that. <laughs> I was never born to be a dancer. And many people have gone, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but if we, if, if we can look back to what we have sown, what we have fixed our minds on, if we have fixed our minds on Jesus, if we have fixed our minds on his word, then guess what's in our future? Hope and peace, grace, purpose, life. Am I outside the camera zone? <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean to fix your thoughts on God? How do we do this? Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 gives us an amazing instruction. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what? What is true? And honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I remember uh, way back a preacher, uh, a favorite preacher of mine who was my youth pastor back in the day. He used to say this all the time when he was teaching us, when he was speaking to the youth. He'd go, junk in, junk out. Junk in, junk out. And some of us need a checkup from the neck up to heal stinking thinking. What are you feeding? What are you fixing? What are you fixing your gaze upon? What you fix your eyes on will grow. What you fix your eyes on will produce fruit. What you fix your eyes on will shape you. Sow a thought. Reap an action. How many of our thoughts are spent on things relating to God? What do you fix your thoughts on when you're anxious or you're stressed? Do you fix your thoughts on fear and hopelessness or do you fix your thoughts on the author of hope? Then the famous Psalm 23, it says, He sets a table in the midst of my enemies. He doesn't say, come and remove yourself and let us have a feed. He says, no, 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 come on. Stop right where you are. And have a feed. You know what? If you're walking through a storm right now, 
Maybe you just need to stop and have a feed. A feed of what? The Word of God. Some worship. Some peace and quiet. Turn the noise down. Turn the phone off. (laughs) I suggest that if we spend more time fixing our thoughts on the access that we've been given to God through the Bible and committing to building the habit of centering our thoughts on God, then we will experience peace in the midst of. You know, I want to I take you on a bit of a journey this morning. I wanna, we're going to literally unpack how a very, very, very well-known and very famous believer collapsed in his faith. Like he had a cataclysmic collapse. I mean, this would have made headlines around the world today. His name was Peter. So a thought reap in action. You know what? The first thing, the first thing that started Peter's decline into collapse was disbelief. Jesus warned Peter that he was a target, and Peter didn't believe him. Luke 22, 31, 32, Satan has demanded the right to test each one of you, but Simon, Peter, I have prayed that your faith will be strong, and that this, and when you have come back to me, help the others. What? <laughs> That's, that there bakes my noodle. It's like Jesus goes, guess what, Peter? The devil's after you. When that's all done and dusted and you've come back, it's like Jesus knew what Peter was going to do. Actually, the scriptures prove that Jesus did know what Peter was going to do. But his first problem was he didn't believe his thought life. Jesus, I mean, come on, guys. I want just this. If the creator of the heavens and the earth rocked up into your house this afternoon and said, oh, by the way, A, B, C, D, and then E, what would you go? Nah. Or even worse, would we even know who he was? Now, so Peter had a thought of disbelief. The next thing was that it caused was he went from disbelief to distance He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, but when the going got tough, they arrested Jesus and they led him to the high priest's home and Peter followed at a distance. You know, he sowed a thought of disbelief and it reaped an action. What was that? To withdraw to a distance. Safe. I'm I'm here. I'm here. I'm just going to be safe. So he went from disbelief to distance. But the more the disbelief and the distance took hold of his life, step three was this, denial. A servant girl said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. Disbelief led to distance, led to denial, and it collapsed into defeat. The moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter, suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you deny that you even know me. Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Here's how it works. First, you assume that you won't fall. So you don't believe you can. And you're unprepared for Satan's attack when it comes. Next, you allow the problems and the pressures of life 
to distance you from God, to distance you from cell groups, to distance you from youth group, to distance you from church, to distance you from fellowship with believers. And then you begin to deny your faith in God was ever that real. And finally, you end up completely defeated physically, mentally, and spiritually. You know, you might be sitting here this morning going, that'll never happen to me. That's what Peter said. That's what Peter said. I mean, he lived with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He walked and talked and ate and received from Jesus for three solid years. There would be no better internship on the planet. Peter didn't think it was ever going to go bad. Sow a thought, reap an action. So, okay, let's have a look at the power of the action now. Sow an action, reap a habit. If we put ourselves in Peter's shoes, the reason that Satan asked for him to test him was because he knew how passionate Peter was. In actual fact, he, the Jesus said that Satan had asked to test all of the disciples, but poor old Peter, he became the case study. Because guess what? The devil knows that when you get passionate for God, when you get on fire for the Messiah, there's no stopping you. When you catch a revelation out of the Word of God and you begin to run with that revelation, oh my goodness, there will be reports. Boom, boom, boom. Man, I wish I had that sound. If I had a button here this morning, I'd keep pushing that to get that report sound. Psalm 69 verse 9 says this, passion for your house has consumed me. That was King David. I mean, we all know that David was passionate about the house of God, but actually right here, whilst he was confessing his own passion for the house of God, he was also prophesying what Jesus was going to be like. Because if you read into the New Testament, when Jesus walks into the temple and he finds all the, all the, the trading and the money changing and the selling and everything like that, he sits down, literally sits down and weaves a whip. It wouldn't have been a quick job. I kind of I kind of picture Jesus just kind of sitting there. I wonder if he muttered. Did, I wonder if Jesus muttered. Should be praying. Shouldn't be selling. This is my father's house as he makes this whip. And then he gets up and he clears the house. And at that point, the disciples immediately go, oh my goodness, that's in the word of God. Passion for your house is consumed. When we experience the glory of God and the presence of Jesus, we can't help but physically respond. I asked this question of our nine o'clock meeting this morning. So those of you who are here at nine. What's another name for the dummy that we give a baby? A pacifier or a pacivator. Are you passionate about God or is your faith merely passive? Because here's the thing about a, a dummy. A pacifier. It mimics feeding, but it actually gives nothing. It gives the baby a foodless exercise while keeping them quiet. One, one person this morning says, but it comforts them. Yeah, it does. It comforts them. Don't talk to me about too much, Jesus. I just want to sit in the presence and look nice. I'm going to suck on my dummy. I'm not going to get any food, but at least I'm comfortable. 
Is that what your faith is like this morning? I don't want to offend anyone this morning, but I do want to provoke you to thought. I do want to provoke you to check in your heart where you're at with God. You see, here's the thing. The devil has no issue with you professing that you're a Christian as long as you're quiet and do nothing. You'd be quiet now. <laughs> what then shall I do with Jesus? Never lose your passion for God. 2 Timothy 1 verses 6 and 7. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is the Apostle Paul to Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. So we've had the power of thought, power of action. What about the power of commitment? So a habit, reap a character. Worshipping through our actions. As I said before, when we experience the truth of God, the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we can't help but respond. And even in those times when we don't necessarily feel His presence, and thus, just like this, we don't feel like there's something provoking us or stirring us to action, this is where discipline kicks in. That big nasty D word. Discipline kicks in. On Sunday mornings, midweek at home, when we join in the singing or we kneel and surrender or we bow in reverence, worship realigns us. When you're going through a tough time, stick on something that's got a bit of grunt and a bit of a drumbeat that declares the name of Jesus and shout the name of Jesus. Bust some rock and realign the atmosphere. Realign your heart and your mind and your thinking. And then as the power and the presence of God does that, posture yourself in awe and reverence of the one who actually is in control. We posture ourselves in accordance with what is true, whether we feel it or not. I remember years ago, I had come to church with just a bit of a confession from the pastor. <laughs> that particular morning, I didn't even want to be here. <laughs> I'm so sorry to say that. It had just been a really stink week, and I had a really stink attitude, and everyone I looked at, I gave them a stink eye. I was just really stink. I just, I just needed to go and have a shower, probably. You know, I just, everything was stink. And I was standing in the front row, and I was like, oh, this music stink, church stink, I want to go home and eat ice cream. You know, I, was just, I was in a bad way. And I was standing there, and I was like, I, I, I kind of, it was like I kind, of, I kind of sort of stood, and I was looking at myself going, you got a stink attitude? <laughs> and I was going, yes, yeah, so what of it? You know, I was having this conversation, and I just had this moment where I was like, you know what, something's got to shift. Something's got to shift. And so I had to make a decision. And I'm coming to this bit in a minute. But right there, right then, I decided to posture myself to praise myself out of my prison. And so I lifted my hands. And I punched the air. And I shouted in my singing. And probably hit more off notes that morning than I've ever hit in my life. But I tell you what, by the time the worship set had finished, I didn't stink anymore. 
I was sweaty, but <laughs> I didn't stink anymore. My brain had realigned to the promises of God. My, because my thoughts had realigned, my actions were declaring they weren't just I'm discerning, determining to praise the God, but my hands were raised because I just desired and loved God. You can do this. The Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament is abad, A-B-A-D, with the macron over the first day. And it means to work or to serve. The word carries the image of working for the Lord in the context of serving out of a spirit of joyful freedom. Do you know what it is this morning to just rock up to church or to rock up to connect group or youth group or rock up to work so overflowing with joy and freedom and the power and the presence of God that your workmates go, how many coffees did you have today? I get accused of that regularly. The book of Exodus where God says through Moses to the Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship me, sets in place the sower habit, reaper character theme. In the Old Testament, Testament, we find that the way the people worship God was active participation. Stop sucking on your dummy and get involved. Much of this worship consisted of this. Oh, look at this. Walking out the laws that Moses gave them, keeping the feasts, going to the temple, bringing their sacrifice and their tithes, serving one another, using the gifts and the abilities that God had given them, and not turning away from him to worship false gods. Power of commitment changes. So an action reaper character. Then we come to the power of decision. So a character reaper destiny. The title of this message is actually a quote from the book of Matthew. The Roman governor Pilate, as he has assessed Jesus, he has questioned him, he has tried to trap him and everything, and he comes out and he stands before the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the risen up mob, and he asks this, I find no guilt in this man, what then shall I do with Jesus? 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 7 has been used by preachers down throughout the ages when it comes to bringing our tithes and offerings into church. But it is so much more of that. It says this, you must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Now, if you read into the specifics of chapter 9, um, it, it, it is talking about their finances, their offerings, their sacrifices, their tithes and offerings. But actually, it's so much bigger than that. You must choose in your heart when you rock up here on a Sunday morning whether you're going to give God your praise. We sing a song. It says, the, the, the breath in my lungs, I pour out to you. We breathe because he first breathed into us. We love because he first loved us. We give because he gave all for us. So choose. <coughs> Pardon me. Or decide. You must decide in your heart. You know the word decide, is, it's an incredible word. It's actually one word made of two small words. The word D-E, D -E, which means two or multiple, and then side, C-I-D-E. These two words joined together literally mean to kill off. The etymology of this, the last part, side, we, we see it in the, in the word homicide. We see it in the word pesticide. Homicide is to kill off humans. Pesticide is to kill off pests. Do we need to do some pesticide in our lives? To decide is literally to remove the options, 
to remove double-mindedness, to determine by killing off other choices. You must decide in your heart how much to give. I, can, I, can I challenge you again? <laughs> can I do it again this morning? I would, like to, I would like to encourage you this morning to make one decision, not 52. When it comes to church, when it comes to youth group or connect group or reading your Bible every day, make one decision, not 52. When you wake up in the morning, don't go, ah. No, when you wake up in the morning, go, where's my word? Where's the word? Kill off all the options. So I then come back to the question again. What then shall I do with Jesus? Well, it's going to get real simple. We have three options. And we need to kill off two of these three. First option, reject him. What then shall I do with Jesus? First option, reject him. That's what the Pharisees did. Pilate asked, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. Why? Because his grace and his power exposed their lack of faith and lack of understanding in the word and the law of God. His truth exposed their error. And guess what? When we don't like the message, we reject the messenger. And that doesn't necessarily have to do with the Bible. Maybe, maybe there's something going on for you at work and your boss has said, you know what, this behavior needs to change. We don't like the message, we reject the messenger. Maybe, <coughs> excuse me, you are working with a, a, a dietitian or a medical person and they're going, this needs to change. When, when we don't like the message, we reject the messenger. So that's option one, reject him. Option two is avoid him. That's what Pilate's wife did. <coughs> Excuse me. His wife sent to him, saying, have nothing to do with this man, this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Why do people avoid Jesus? Well, because he forces a reaction in their hearts. He calls you to make a choice between living for self or living for him. The chief priests accused Jesus before Pilate. He stirs up the people. And they were right. They were right. Before Jesus delivers us, he'll disturb us. And guess what? Sometimes we just don't want to be disturbed. We like to hang that wee thing on the door handle of our hearts. says, do not disturb. God wants to come in and make up your room. <laughs> and then, of course, we can reject him. We can avoid him. Then there's the third option. And if I may be so bold, on an eternal scale, this is the only option. And that is accept him. <coughs> Excuse me. That's what the Apostle Paul says in this in Galatians 2.20. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live 
in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus and they rejected him. Pilate tried to wash his hands of the whole thing and avoid him. The thief on the cross hanging beside Jesus believed and accepted him. Worship team, would you please come? So I ask you this morning, and I, leave, I started with this question, and I leave you with this question. What then shall I do with Jesus? <clears throat> or because I'm asking you, what then will you do with Jesus? Jesus.